Yeah, before this, in my little Saeed Jones research moment, I read your interview with Patricia Smith, The Job of the Poet is to Witness for Poetry mm. Foundation. It was incredible. In contemporary American poetry, all roads lead to Patricia Smith, which I- They do. They you do. Not, they really do. No, that's where the road eventually leads to, but you're but walking on it, aren't you? Uh-huh. It's true. It's the Via Appia. It's all roads lead to Rome and Patricia Smith. <laughs> Hey, poets and poetry lovers, welcome to, drumroll please, having a coke with you, uh, the Poetry Society of New York podcast in which I, your extraordinary, humble host, Tova Green, sit down and have a coke with some of the most iconic poets of today's day and age. A couple months back, I sat down with one of the incredible headliners of the 12th annual New York City Poetry Festival, Sai Jones, and I am so excited for y'all to listen to this brilliant angel speak. Saeed Jones is the author of the memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, winner of the 2019 Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction, and the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise, winner of the 2015 Penn Joyce Osterwill Award for Poetry. His poetry and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, Oxford American, and GQ, among other publications. His new poetry collection, Alive at the End of the World, is out now. And I've gotta tell you, not only is Saeed one of the most prolific writers of today he's also such a sweetheart with the best energy and like the best sense of humor the first question i asked saeed was about his poetry origin story how did he become a poet like in his poems was there a volta or a turning point here's what he had to say You know, I I always, to be clear, you know, I was always a voracious reader, um, really curious. I was always asking teachers for recommendations for books I could go get on my own. That was always really important agency. And I think the idea of agency is perhaps why I gravitated toward poetry in particular, um, you know, with such intensity compared to the other forms of writing that I was learning about at the same time. In that, fiction and nonfiction, at the time, you know, it felt like there were so many rules. <laughs> I now know it's like really about how, you know, I think it's true for a lot of us in the United States, you know, using like kind of a, a Western Euro- European framework about narrative structure and this is what characterization, you know, like this, very, it just seemed very regimented. With poetry, however, um, there was a slipperiness and what I would actually call now like a queerness to it. For example, it can be an autobiographical poem, right? It can be a persona poem. It could be a, you know, ekphrastic, you know, the I could be different things in different stanzas. Of course, there's formal, there's free, you know, there was just such a a slipperiness. Every poem, it seemed, and I feel this is still true, every poem I came to had its own integrity, had its own inherent um, value system. And um, it was my job to engage in a dialogue with it. And sure, there were rhyme and, and uh, you know, anaphora and different, you know, terms and concepts, you know, that were being taught to help us understand poetry. But ultimately, like, the poem was the poem. You know, um, an Emily Dickinson poem is not an Anne Sexton poem. And so, you know, you have tools to a certain extent to understand both, but you need to take those poems um, at face value and engage them. And I think as a young Black queer person growing up in the suburbs of North Texas, that's what I wanted. 
I wanted my humanity to be engaged, you know, not according to set cultural rules, but based on who I was, what I was feeling. I wanted um, to feel that my own integrity was being honored. And so though I loved literature and I loved reading and I was such a geek and so proud of it, I was so proud of it. I was definitely that kid that was like using you know, vocabulary words that even now I don't know the meaning of, you know what I mean? Just, because it was a way to distinguish myself, you know? But I loved the agency I felt in poetry. And that's why I actually still have one of my notebooks. Um, I would say my origin story is when I started writing little poems and lines, really little lyrics and couplets in my own notebook, because there was a freedom I was beginning to find in poetry. Even again, going back to the pronouns, you know, using a poem of address and just focusing on you gave me the freedom and frankly, the maybe the privacy, the security that I didn't have to worry about someone asking, is this poem about a boy you have a crush on or a girl? You know, I just go, oh, it's, it's a you. Or I go, oh, it's a persona poem. This is Penelope writing about Odysseus. This isn't about me. You know what I mean? Like there was just, and I think that's true for a lot of young writers that there's the craft, there's the music, there's, you know, whatever, but ultimately you're using the form to tap into a strength you know you need. And I'd say that's my origin story. After hearing a little bit about Saeed's childhood as a Black queer person in Texas, I was super curious to hear about the people who helped Saeed become the confident, nuanced writer he is known to be. Specifically, I was interested to know if there were any influential teachers in his life who encouraged him to pursue poetry. As a queer person myself, I think there is a universal understanding among folks in the queer community that high school humanities classes are one of the first readily accessible spaces in which closeted queer kids are able and safe to express their own queerness. Personally, I know that I was deeply impacted by my English teachers when I was an emerging closeted poet. So let's take a listen to what Saeed had to say to that. Um, I think there are some letters of recommendation, you know, because I was, I was interested in theater. I was interested in public speaking, debate, forensics. Um, I was in the schools like literary guild, you know, words, communication, um, writing and, and working with a text to connect with readers or some kind of audience. I, I was very aware that there were many ways that that could play out and I was game for all of them. Um, but I will say certainly by the time I was in college, I had a professor, Tom Hunley, who saw me in a, I was like in a general education course, like a, you know, just like a take this literature course just to satisfy, you know, check whatever box. And he was one of the first people that said, you need to take a workshop. Like it's worth your time. And then later he was like, you need to change your major. <laughs> like, you need because I was like basically studying to be a teacher. And he was like, you could do that. You can, and you could always do that. You're really passionate about this writing. And if you want, you know, go this way. And then, and again, it was via Tom um, Healy. He invited a poet the first time there was like a visiting writer. Like that was, you know, to me, all writers were essentially dead. And it was only because of Oprah having Toni Morrison on at the time. This is like, you know, 90s, early 2000s, felt like every other week. It felt like, you know, it was like Toni, I knew Toni Morrison was alive, I knew Alice Walker. You know, there were some writers that particularly black writers that I very much understood um, were a part of the discourse, a part of my mother's life. Um, but in terms of poetry, Janine Hall Gailey came to visit um, our class at Western Kentucky University. Again, not, not a very fancy, you know, institution. And I was like, I'm meeting a writer and she's a woman. And I believe the book she came to talk about at the time was her book, um, 
becoming the villainess, which is all persona poetries and like fairy tales. And even, I think she's drawing from like anime comic. No, I was just like, oh my God. You know, like she gets it, she gets it. Um, and she took me aside and told me, she was like, this poem I saw from you, like you should consider submitting it somewhere. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I think it was like, I knew, you know, this realm of communication and, and using a thoughtful relationship to language, to do something, to connect with someone. I was pretty sure that was going to be a part of my life. But I do think having mentors like Janine or Tom and others come to mind, maybe tip the scales. You know what I mean? And, and I was one of those people who I think I was so desperate for, again, that sense of respect, integrity to feel that I was being taken seriously as a person, you know, because I think when you're, when you're struggling with your sexuality, when you're trying to make sense of race and racism, you feel that you're constantly being undermined. You feel that you're constantly kind of being misread, right? Because people are seeing you through the foggy lens of their bias. Um, and so to have someone recognize like an inherent talent, that that's such a a humanizing experience. And so it was kind of like someone, you know, the people spoke up and said, oh, we see this. And I was like, let's go. You want me to jump how high? <laughs> you know? And so then, it, I mean, I was off to the races. I mean, I would literally, I remember within just weeks of these conversations with these professors and writers, I became the person who would go to the library at Western Kentucky University. And I would say today is a Lucille Clifton day. And I would pull every Lucille Clifton book off the shelf and just sit cross-legged. And I would read Lucille Clifton the entire day. It was like my own independent study. And that's just how it was. When Saeed said that he would make his own independent studies to immerse himself in poetry, I had like an OMG, I can relate moment because I did exactly that. I would spend my free periods reading Diane McCoskey's Emerald Ice between the stacks of my high school library. So I immediately wanted to talk poetry. So I asked Saeed, were there poems that changed your life? Poets that changed your life? That made you think of the world in a different way? Understand yourself in a different way? If so, who are they? And can you share? Take a listen. Audre Lorde was really important to me when I was growing up. And her, she has a poem um, called Generation that she published, and I'm holding that, the collected poems of Audre Lorde. She published two versions of. In the early version, there's a couplet that codes the poem as straight, as heterosexual. And then that was 1968. And then in 1967, she published the poem again and changes that couplet. Yeah. Um, and literally uses the word gay. <laughs> which I just thought was interesting. But the reason I, I love that poem of hers is because it's a poem about people speaking across generation, a generational gap. And the way people with more experience, yeah. Tova's Toba's like fully holding up their copy of it. I love it. Tova's like, I got it. Like one second. Come on, legend. Come on, Tova. Uh, I first read it in high school and um, throughout my 20s, I just kept returning to it. In part because I was trying to figure out Again, like I was saying, rule breaking. I was like, you can publish, you can write the same poem multiple times and like change things, you know? And that's what like KSA Lehman just republished an entire book of essays of his that he decided to revise. Like, that's really exciting. Okay. This is Generation by Audre Lorde and it was published in 1976. How the young attempt and are broken differs from age to age. We were brown free girls, love singing beneath our skin, 
sun in our hair, in our eyes, sun, our fortune. The wind had made us golden, made us gay. In a season of limited power, we wept out our promises. And these are the children we try now for temptations that wear our face. But who comes back from our latched cities of falsehood to warn them that the road to nowhere is slippery with our blood? To warn them they need not drink the river to get home, since we have purchased bridges with our mother's bloody gold. For now, we are more than kin who have come to share not only blood, but the bloodiness of our failures. How the young are tempted and betrayed into slaughter or conformity is a turn of the mirror, time's question only. Um, I think again, particularly as someone who is reading this, you know, as a, as a teenager initially, it has so much of what I wanted, which was, you know, older people, people with more age and experience to level with me. Um, there's something about wisdom where you also need the humility to be not just like you're about to make a mistake, but you're about to make a mistake. And the reason I'm responding in such an intense way is because I see myself. I've turned the mirror and it's like looking at myself about to walk into that bad room. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, Tova's read um, my memoir. So like, imagine how I would feel if I encountered a young queer person on a New Year's Eve night about to go away with some guy that I have a feeling is really familiar with a guy who once tried to kill me. You know, of course I would leap up and do anything I could <laughs> to go bad, don't do it. The road to nowhere is paved with my blood. Um, and I think what Audre Lorde does so well in that poem is what doesn't happen in real life usually, is that our elders, certainly our mentors, our family members, our grandparents, don't level with us in that way. <laughs> and so it just reads as, you know, judgment, as bias, as, as homophobia, transphobia, you know, it's not it's not someone really connecting with you. And that, of course, makes you want to run in the other direction. It was always interested again because it's about for me it was about agency and it was about freedom and so I was I never wanted to read poems by men <laughs> it took me a very long books but it took me actually a very long time and, and, and I had to mature and deal with a lot of myself before I could honestly just want to pick up a book by I mean because I was so aware of um of the canon and the politics of the canon. So I was resistant to that. So the way you would get my attention as a young writer was doing something unexpected and me feeling like, oh, and I didn't, they didn't tell us in class you could do that. So like Lucille Clifton, she has a poem, and I can't, I, I don't know if this is the exact title, but she's like, the dream about like, she's like, I, I dreamt I woke up and I was white. <laughs> And it's a very short but very funny poem. <laughs> and I and I remember. Reading the, you know, and again, I'm like, I'm like, you're right, that independent student of Lucille's the Lucille Clifton completionist course with Saeed Jones. And I remember the laughter that came out of me was not school laughter, was not classroom laughter. That was home laughter. That was auntie laughter. That was that was family reunion laughter, you know? And there was something about being able to um connect that that I was like, oh, I hadn't felt that before. Oh yeah, you found it. You found it. Oh my God. Yeah, my dream about being white. Let me see if I can pull up the link. It's just so, 
delicious. Um, yeah, can I read it? Let's see. Okay, I love it. Okay. <laughs> My dream about being white. Hey, music and me, only white. Hair a flutter of fall leaves circling my perfect line of a nose. No lips, no behind. Hey, white me, and I'm wearing white history. But there's no future in those clothes. So I take them off and wake up dancing. <laughs> there's no future in those clothes? Incredible, you know? And so that... That's, I think, what I've always wanted to do, write with rigor and appreciation of the depths and nuances of literature and, and everything that is possible when you decide to sit down and write a poem. Tap into all of it, baby. You know, Lucy Brock Broido to Whitman to Langston to Ntozake Shange. But also, I want, I want to bring that rigor in a way that can illuminate the people I love and the people I love the most are the people that I want to make laugh, that I want to honor their tears, their blood, you know what I mean? And I think that that sense of urgency that really undergirds all of Lucille Clifton, Miss Lucille Clifton's work in particular, um, even when it's, you know, a funny poem it's funny with a purpose, that that humor is a rhetorical tool, that humor um, has a direct relationship to her politics and her understanding of history. And I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Next up, Saeed and I talked about Entezake Shange, reclaiming the poetry canon, Xanax, and so much more. <laughs> Take a listen. One Saeed, thank you so much for being here. You're uh, incredible. I read How We Fight for Our Lives basically when it came out, and I was reading it around the time that I read um, Edizake Shange's Lost in Language and Sound. It's one of the, I mean, one of one of the best collections of essays I've ever read in my entire life, and something that stuck with me as I was reading How We Fight for Our Lives was the essay My Pen is a Machete, uh, which talks about how grammatical structure itself is so inherently colonialist and white and absolute bullshit. And so I'm wondering, how do you, in your writing, reclaim language for an experience that's not white or heteronormative, et cetera, et cetera? And what advice would you have for writers to reclaim language from this really toxic and imperialist structure? That is such a beautiful question. Um, and yeah, and you're right. I mean, you know, Ntozake Shange was a writer because of For Colored Girls, um, was a writer that I remember I, in particular, like in Dallas at the time. So yeah, I would have been in high school. Um, I would go to like half price books. And I remember I was able to find some of her books that at the time were out of print, you know, um, and, and kind of expand. I was like, I didn't know she wrote Beyond. You know, I, it was, you know it's, it's, as a young person, you're like, I thought this person did this one thing because that's what they were in the textbook for. Oh, Surely totally. that was it, you know? Um, so yeah, and just, I mean, a totally different relationship to structure and, and grammar. I mean, a lot of things. The first thing is, you know, you have to calm yourself down. If every time I sat down to write, I was like, I am going to decolonize this institute, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't get past the first sentence, you know, like I, I wouldn't make it past the introductory clause because I'd be freaking out, you know, like, I, so I think it's kind of like, if you take care of yourself, and if you take care of the work, you will have many opportunities to participate in this bigger project. And, and the bigger project is not just what you will write. It's not just the poems you're gonna write. It's not just the books you write. It's gonna be the other writers you read, you, how you uplift, you know what I mean? And so I think the first step for me is always like to understand that that intention is through me. It is part of the lightning of my life. But when I sit down to write, I, I do have to kind of distance myself a little bit from it because it's so overwhelming. Um, and then I think, and this is why between writing projects, not often, but not always, but often, there's a lot of time where I'm just thinking and, and often at the time it, it feels, um, I'm in a bit of this right now. It, it feels painful to not be writing because I know it's my purpose. Um, but that time in between when I feel like I'm not doing, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about frameworks. I'm thinking about like, like it's, it's not unusual for me to identify a subject or a topic years before I'm able to start writing about them. And what I now have seen over the course of three, three books, I was like, how many books have I written? Three, three books and different projects is what I'm doing in the time that I'm trying to bridge that gap, right? Is I'm really often thinking about, I mean, both framework and lens that I, I can pull off. <laughs> what am I capable of doing? You know, like I don't, I don't like to, to think about under the Shake Shange is like part of it, I only know the English language very well. I, I, I don't know multiple languages, you know what I mean? And so like that would certainly inform, you know, however I would approach, you know, a, a, an idea about. Uh, decolonization, um, for example, but yeah, so was, you're thinking like what you're capable of, but also I think I think I spend a great deal of time thinking about what other people are doing, you know, because we exist in an ecosystem, we exist in a community of letters. Um, I'm not the only person who's experienced grief, for example, so when I decide to write about grief, I need to humble by, humble myself and humanize myself by studying what other people are doing. You know, so I'm like honing in, getting closer and closer and closer. Um, and then the last step is really the ethics. And I think that's what writers like Audre Lorde, June Jordan, um, Tony Kate Bombera, um, Lucille Clifton taught me a lot just because you can, should you? Um, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, and, and, and honestly, it's interesting, like you mentioned that particular essay from Ntozake Shange, because there was a time when I was like, yeah, my pen is, a weapon. I, I don't, I'm not a warrior. I don't want to be a warrior anymore. You know what I mean? I'm not here for revenge. I'm not here to enact discursive violence. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what I, as I'm slowly walking closer and closer toward that blank page, that's all of what I'm anticipating. Are you writing this because you have an ax to grind? That sounds like it should be a therapy session instead. I don't know if that needs to be a poem. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of what I'm figuring out. Yeah, so for me, it's a, um, I guess what I'm trying to say to answer your question, it's a slow walk now. And I'm grateful that I have the confidence to understand that I will always be able to find opportunities to write. I have, I'm under no illusions about that. I'll be able to publish somewhere, somehow. 
Um, I know I can do it. And I know that when I do do it, um, I believe, you know, the finished product will be something I'm proud of. So, you know, then what's the intention? What's the need? And I think it just, for me, it's like, just because you've identified the subject doesn't mean you understand the most ethical and um, needed way to engage that subject. And that's how I kind of try to make sure that I'm not replicating um, patriarchy. You know, I think in the way that people talk about, you know, 19th and 20th century photography, particularly like photography of non-white subjects. And it's like a, a soul stealing enterprise. It's the camera itself is a tool of uh, empire. You know, I think sometimes the way people have talked about poetry, it sounded somewhat similar. You know, I was like, when people were like, I use poetry to like be a voice for the voiceless. I'm like, red flag, <laughs> red flag. You know what I mean? Like that, I think, and particularly, you know, being in school in the early 2000s, I think you would still hear that at times from, from teachers, from mentors, from esteemed writers at the time, that just because you, that just because you could write about anyone, you should, you know, and just like, oh, I passed a homeless person, an unhoused person on the street today. And I just, it was so interesting. I just decided to write a short story in their voice. I just thought it'd be so cool. You know what I mean? That that kind of casual disregard for the ethics of what you were doing. So yeah, so that's where I kind of spend a lot of time worrying. Fair enough. I mean, <laughs> hey, that worry is what my Xanax is for. Yeah, look, look. <laughs> look. And, and, and the other thing is, I, for me, I mean, I, everyone has a different practice, but I find I have to do, that is my pre-writing. That is my brainstorming. And again, it can be months or years in the making. So I'm doing it for different projects at the same, you know, um, because I can't be doing all that while I'm trying to write, which kind of takes mm. me back to the beginning of my answer, right? Where I'm like, I wouldn't be able to finish my sentence if I'm like, should I be writing about my mother? Like by the time I decide to start writing about someone, I need to be all in. Now this is about language. This is about scene. This is about characterization and tone. I can't be worrying about the ethics of what I'm doing once I've reached that point. You were talking about at the beginning of this little conversation about how you were running from the canon like the plague, which is, you know, same. Love that. Um, we're talking, I'm thinking a lot about um, the new canon of poetry. Mm. And I'm wondering, well, one, what's what's your advice for decolonizing the canon? And in this new canon, who should be a part of it? Like, who are your go-to recommendations? Who does everyone have to read? Are there people that everybody should read? What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Um, are there people everyone should read? Probably. I, I guess it's more like I would like. It would it would help. It would be nice to have these texts in common. Um, I mean, so, so here's the thing that I've learned about the canon. It's about time and opportunity, right? Like the, the entire issue with the canon is that it is not an official record of high literature. It is an official record of people who got the opportunity to be regarded, you know, as important and significant enough that they were asked, who do you think everyone should be reading, right? And I say that because in the end, all of our canons 
it's personal. It's about, it's about your mentors on the page or in life. It's about the themes and thematic obsessions of other writers that have resonated with. It's just personal, right? And that's deeply human. The problem is, you know, I don't know, uh, Harold Bloom was asked that question just a lot more frequently than June Jordan, you know, and, 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 and asked by the kind of people who then had the power to act upon it. That's all it is, you know? Um, I think Patricia Smith has raised a generation of artists. And there are many of us as poets who appreciate that now. I, you know, I, 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 don't th I think the word underrated can be <laughs> um, a bit of a blade, but I think with time, the appreciation for Patricia Smith's work and influence will only um, grow. Because one, I think the work she's done in the last decade, particularly with documentary poetry, um, has been really important to me, really important to a lot of writers I admire, and, and particularly as someone who loves the different mediums. Let's, let's talk about journalism, let's talk about current events, let's talk about news and history. How can we bring that into poetry? What's the, the interchange between the two? Um, her rela relationship to form and, and, and verse, oh my gosh. I mean, I, I feel like she's, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's hard to think of a contemporary poet who, has um, illuminated formal versus potential and invited a lot of writers and readers into appreciating forms like the Sistina and you know that that many of us I think had started maybe to to write off to lose faith in. Um, Terence Hayes is certainly a part of that as well. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I would say in, in terms of. Again, I mean, I love that. It's like reclaiming, you know, they're making new forms. Jericho Brown with the duplex. That's, yeah, Jericho Brown, Terrence Hayes, Patricia Smith. I think that's huge. I think that's huge because um, to think about like decolonizing form, creating new forms, being thoughtful. I'll never forget. I was really lucky. And I think it might've been my first AWP. Oh my gosh, I was a baby. I was maybe a junior in college. This was like 2007. I got to sit in the panel where um, Terrence Hayes read the poem, Snow for Wallace Stevens. Um, and like in real time, because I don't think it had been published yet or maybe it had just been published on the blog. And like to watch Terrence Hayes, who at that point had published, I think just his first book, maybe a second, Wind in the Box, I think had just come out, to watch him taking on the canon in a way that was not, we're fully walking away and just pretending this never existed, right? Which I just don't know if that that's viable or totally productive. Rather, we're gonna exist in dialogue and the critique can be as artful and arguably more nuanced than the original work itself. I was like, oh, okay, that's really exciting to me. So yeah, that's what I would say about the canon. I think those three. And then Dinesh Smith, because I will say Dinesh Smith's any name anytime I get a chance to mention their name. <laughs> Dinesh Smith is one of my favorites of all time. You and Dinesh Smith are like up there as two of my favorites of all that's time. Good company. I think it's great at besties, great company. We love it. <laughs> yeah, before this, in my little 
uh, Saeed Jones research moment, I read your interview with Patricia Smith, The Job of the Poet is to Witness for Poetry mm. Foundation. It was incredible. In contemporary American poetry, all roads lead to Patricia Smith, which I- They do. They you do. Not, they really do. Know that's where the road eventually leads to, but you're but walking on it, aren't you? Uh-huh. It's true. It's the Via Appia. It's all roads lead to Rome and Patricia Smith. Um, I was fascinated by a question you asked, Patricia, that I kind of want to throw back at you if you oh, don't gosh. mind. Okay. Oh, boy. Here we go. Okay. This is, this is a question you asked. Okay. Quote, I think of you as one of the goddesses of persona poetry. Given that we're more thoughtful about cultural appropriation now, how have your thoughts about persona poems changed? Has the way you approach the form changed? I want to know your thoughts, my darling. That's what yeah, I want to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, this connects a bit to what I was talking about, the voice for the voiceless. Um, I think there were two extremes in the way that I was initially taught about persona poetry. Um, that it was the realm of poems for figures really from the... Europe, Western European um, mythic tradition. You know, we're gonna write a poem in the voice of Odin today. It's gonna be Penelope today. It's gonna be uh, something from, you know, um, a German fairy tale today. You know what I mean? It, it would be that. Or it would be the realm, the persona of, I'm trying to find a nice way to say this, um, a kind of vulture, a culture vulture, phenomenon you know so there's the realm of like persona is about the mythic and then persona is about often a vulnerable often transient um, person or community a lot of offensive pretty offensive stuff and and when we look back a lot of that work um, has not aged well at all and then you're like and what's the purpose what did we learn what did we learn what was the value here you know were you actually yeah, I don't know. Um, and so I love the mythic. I think that's always a fun tradition. But again, you're engaging with a certain system. And I'm definitely not interested in being a vulture. People's lives are their lives. Um, it, just as I don't like a phenomenon that you see on social media where people walk up to strangers and videotape them and ask them a question. What? <laughs> you know, like that, you know what I mean? Or like, or uh, actually a more accurate example, there's a form of persona poetry that's the equivalent of feel like of taking a picture of someone asleep on the train without asking their permission. And then you've kind of tweeted or written a whole thing about like, oh, look how th-. I'm like, did that person even know what's going on? What are you doing? You know what I mean? Um, so that's that's not that I was writing poems about that, but I think I'm aware of that. I think for me, I'm interested in the nuances of persona as a form. I think we each have multiple personas. Certainly in Alive at the End of the World, you see me (laughs) tapping into different Saeeds, um, right? Um, And then, yeah, so I guess the the ethics of persona I'm interested in and and using it to understand that you don't actually know anyone, including yourself, I think is really exciting. Um, So I'm going to read a poem that is about when it doesn't work out. The concise version of this story, because you can look it up if you're interested and and read more about their personal histories, but toward the end of her life, Billie Holiday, a few years before she died, um, ended up, was in California for a while in the Bay Area and went to see a young Maya Angelou perform at some jazz club. And Maya Angelou briefly, this is like Maya in her 20s, 
performed, and this is wild because Maya is not from the islands, if you know about Maya. She's not from the islands at all, but she created this persona, which is interesting, um, called Miss Calypso. She did not grow up in the Calypso music tradition. So she created this whole island persona and, and would do this whole thing where when she forgot the words, because clearly she wasn't very good at the persona, um, she'd go, oh, I appear to have forgotten the words. I'll now dance. And she would just like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, va-va-voom, you know. And so just imagine an old wizened Billie Holiday toward the end of her life, seeing everything she's seen about how this this country in particular treats Black women. And then here's Maya Angelou just, you know, acting a fool. Um, so I flip it. So instead of the elder speaking to the young person, this is a young person being like, fuck you. <laughs> Performing is Miss Calypso, Maya Angelou dances whenever she forgets the lyrics, which Billie Holiday, seated in the audience, finds annoying. I killed a man once just by laughing. We weren't even in the same city, but I felt his heart stab itself like a star falling through me, like the curve of my hips, helping the crowd hear this verse. Billy rolls her eyes just like she slurs her words. She doesn't understand. I'll live forever because nothing here matters. Lifetimes are just costume jewelry. In this dressing room, Billy, Holly, Billy said, I'm going to be famous, but it won't be for singing. I plucked the best part of her curse out of her mouth and pinned it to my blouse, another cheap jewel. When I look at her, I see a girl who keeps mistaking dead ends for mink stoles. I could pick her hurt out of any lineup. That's why I laugh every time I look at her. Um, and that line, um, you'll be famous, but it won't be for singing, is what Billie Holiday told her. <laughs> wow, my hand hurts from aggressive snapping. Oh my God, <laughs> I yes. love a good, okay, come on, Poetry Slam, snap. Come love on, Poetry Slam, yes. <laughs> Even though no one externalizes it, I think that every poet can relate to the fact that being a poet is hard, <laughs> for a multitude of reasons. It's hard to develop and stick to a writing practice, it's hard to fend off writer's block, and once you have work, sharing it is hard. Being perceived, especially as a writer, is hard. It's hard, period, to exist as a person under capitalism. But it's even harder to monetize something that means so much to you, because it's essentially monetizing yourself. So naturally, I asked Saeed what his thoughts were about self-care as a writer, and here's what he had to say. As a writer, um, I nap. I, you know, I think, <laughs> I think because poetry is slippery in its relationship to capitalism, I think we often, as poets, undermine the labor, like you were saying. It's different work, but it's work. And work takes something from you. You need to recover from work. You know what I mean? And so I try to take it as seriously as my other mediums and my other labors. You know what I mean? And um, I think that's important um, in order for it to be sustainable. I'm not trying to set my hair on fire every time I write a poem because my hair is beautiful and um, it doesn't just like grow overnight. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't know. I, I think 
you know, I try to rest. I try to pace myself. I try to say, you can always come back tomorrow. <laughs> like this, this, this draft, it's, you, you've been in three hours now, you know, like, let's step away. It's interesting. You see this, and I guess, you know, someone now who's published a memoir, who's worked in a newsroom, there is definitely like this um, invisible but real perception hierarchy of rigor, um, where I think poetry is treated as like being easy or, or not being as serious as, um, as an essay, as a, as a piece of long form cultural criticism, as reported journalism. Um, I don't believe in that. I don't think, I, I know that hierarchy exists. I don't think it's useful. Um, so I just try to treat it like I, if working on a poem to me is like working on an essay, like working on a piece of cultural criticism. You know what I mean? Um, and I think the thoughtfulness and taking it seriously in that way also means, you know, resting, pacing myself and all of that um, so that you can keep doing it. Love that. Obsessed with that. Obsessed with a little nap moment. Honestly. Also, I, love, I just, I love naps. <laughs> I also love naps. There's nothing like a great power nap, like a 45 minute power mm, nap. Oh it. man. If that's you just like get in a certain kind of rhythm. After we bonded over our shared love of naps, <laughs> I was thinking about how in my capacity as programs director of the Poetry Society of New York, my MO 24-7 is to create poetry communities. So I wanted to hear Saeed's thoughts on the importance of a poetry community to him. Take a listen. Um, I think community is always important, you know, so that you're not just drowning in your rich and interesting and important, but interior. There are poets that I am friends with, good friends with. It's interesting. I think with poets, I mean, I always want to know what people are reading. <laughs> um, that's always really important. I want to know what people are reading. Um, but with poets, I just want to know, I, it's like, how are we living? How are we doing? How are you doing? It's a sense of how we are existing in the world. How's your boo doing? How's your girlfriend doing? You know, like that's that's just kind of how we, you know, what's it like living in Wisconsin or California? You know, that, um, because so much in our culture um, tries to render poetry to the realm of the abstract. And I think we can do it to ourselves. And so I think it's for me, I wanna talk to Morgan Parker about like sitting on her porch with her dog, <laughs> you know, like to, you know, to ground my appreciation of this incredible writer. I mean, I think Morgan is one of our preeminent poets and I just wanna know how Morgan's doing as a person. Now, I love staying in touch with artists and people of all mediums. I feel like I go to other people for the poetry, if that makes sense. So I, I think that is, it's because to me, everything's a dialogue. There's a flow. And I think I, I've never been, and I'm, and I'm a journey person, right? I mean, it's clear, right? That I just, I can't sit in one lifetime for too long. So I, I, I just, I think I have to interact with people who are doing something different for me, for me to really notice and go, oh, there was such a music to that. Or, oh, that's a, huh, that's an, it just hits different. Whereas I think when you are, and this is true for all forms, I'm sure if we were in the realm of theater, I would probably say the same thing. If I was only around theater people all the time, I think I would begin to lose appreciation for what we're all creating because you lose perspective. It's like locking us all in one room. And we're all, like, all we wanna do is get out. Hello, like nothing will make you more cynical. Nothing will make you more cynical. But then, you know, you, you talk to someone and they're like, 
last fall, one of the last events I did before the holiday, it was like a class of first year uh, college students at an art college and they had all read my memoir. And it had been a while since I'd done an event, not just with college students, but specifically first year college students. For them, those kids to come to me in like the book signing line and for them to talk to me about what hearing about my coming of age experience meant to them. Oh my gosh, of course it's great to talk to writers and you, you know, you want the reviews and you want your book to be well received by your, your peers and, and the acolytes you still look up to, but to talk to just like kids and they're like, I get it, I'm in it, I'm there, <laughs> you know, for them to be like, I'm reading chapter eight and I'm on chapter eight and I'm living it, you know, like that, that is the energy that makes me want to create writing. Um, whereas I think when I'm just talking to other writers all the time, I don't know, it, it's cool. It can be cool and fun even, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily create that urgency that really moves me. There's, there are nuances and opportunities and there's a richness that we may not have, you know, I, I'm not like a classically chained musician. So there probably is a term every single you know, little flourish, you know, but I don't have that language. And I can tell you, I had to take a couple grammar classes and I learned very quickly. I was like, oh, I'm out of my depth. This is, this is math. Oh no, the entire point I became a writer was to not have to do this. Like, why are you diagramming synthesis? Jesus Christ. Um, but I have a really well-tuned ear. And so, yeah, it, it presents, not only does it help you hear the mistakes, I think that's just straight up true, you can hear, like if you keep misreading a line there's you, of your own writing, there's usually a reason. <laughs> You're stumbling because you've put a stone in your own path. Um, but also I think the ear, and again, and maybe this is what I'm trying to say, it's like I love being around poets, but I love just being around people doing other things, is because I hearing people like working in different industries, different jobs, different life situations, they have different rhythms. You know, they have they have different vibe. And I think the surprise of that alerts me to it, alerts my ear to it. So yeah, I bring all of that. And so as soon as I have, you know, enough of a draft that it makes sense to start reading it out loud as I continue to revise and generate, I do. Um, because I also need to hear what the poem is doing to kind of get a sense of how it wants to run or gallop. And then that informs how I editing, revising, and if I, you know, and when it ends. <laughs> to end this awesome episode, I had a question that I'm sure everyone listening wants to know. It's next to impossible to survive as an artist, a poet, any kind of writer, which is why organizations like PSNY exist, to create spaces for poets to make money doing what they love. So I gotta know, how does Saeed do it? How does he survive as an artist? How does he keep going? Does he have the secret sauce? If so, can he please share the recipe? Encouragement helps. Um, I'm grateful that I was encouraged by people who had wisdom. I'm grateful that the people who said, oh, this thing you were doing, you know, weren't bleeding, you know, could have gone. Because really, I mean, I think, you know, that's what's so kind of wild in retrospect about being young. You're like, I would have done anything if someone had just 
have made me feel welcome and whatever. And, you know, you can go down a lot of bad paths. Um, I think, though, you know, doing well in media, popping up in maybe unexpected places like, you know, the BuzzFeed newsroom for, I was there for six years, 2013 to 2019. Um, and yeah, I, initially I remember being very insecure. I was like, I didn't get, I didn't study journalism. And I remember the editor-in-chief was like, great, that's wonderful. He's like, I spent a lot of time um, working with reporters who are sticking to these norms and rules that actually aren't very helpful for what we're trying to do. And, um, and I just, I was like, okay, you know, I think, again, understanding, and it took me a while to appreciate this, but Clearly, it's just a part of my life. I understand that there are many ways to connect. And it can be a poem. It can be an article. It can be a tweet. It can, you know, like media is about the medium. But when you understand the intention, um, well, then you can thrive in a lot of different contexts, you know? And, um, and again, it, many steps to get there. But I, I remember, you know, in graduate school, uh, my mentor, Rigoberto Gonzalez, who I think is just probably America's preeminent literary citizen, if you really look at everything he's doing and how many ways he has found to love us as a literary community. Um, he was like, you need to learn how to write essays. You need to learn how to write reviews because you know, you're always gonna be a poet. You're always gonna be writing poems, but I need to tell you right now, poems are not gonna be paying your rent. Reviewing and engaging other people's work, learning how to write personal essays, learning how to do cultural criticism. Those are the mediums that will lead to the opportunities that will allow you to sustain yourself and, and allow you to keep waking up, you know, at the crack of dawn so that you can write. Yeah. Be a person who writes, be a person who loves, again, connection. Because that's really, I mean, whatever it is, it's it's one person on one side trying to get something across to a presumed audience. And if you understand that, and I guess it's like, be humble and ambitious regardless of the form. I mean, it just got to the point that I was, you know, how did I end up writing a memoir? Well, I, I appreciated the form. And so I started reading memoirs and, and personal narratives and the personal essay. I took it as seriously as I took poetry. You know, how did I get good at social media? Uh, you know, maybe there are pitfalls there. I'm not gonna, you know, about to say like that's, you know, all been great. But, you know, I do think it's significant that I joined Twitter, for example, um, around like three months before I started graduate school. And so initially the, I was obsessed with the compression of language on Twitter, 140 characters. I was like, oh, wow, that sounds like a, po a poetic form, it's a challenge. And so that was how, how can I find different ways to be interesting when all I have at my disposal are 140 characters? It was just like any poetry exercise and, and I, I went after it <laughs> with the same vigor. And so I just think, yeah, the, the, the more you're able to just be open and see what your innate gifts, how they can thrive in the opportunity of different contexts, I think the more spaces you're gonna be able to thrive. This has been an episode of Having a Coke With You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast. Thank you so much to Saeed Jones for having a Coke with me today. Saeed, your thoughtfulness and energy are unparalleled. 
Thank you to the Radio Drama Network for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to our editor, Debs Baird, and the staff of PSNY for your incredible support. And, most importantly, thank you to you all for listening. (laughs) I wonder who we'll talk to next. Tune in every Friday to find out.